Welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. My name is Zoya Mabuto Mogoditwa, and in this episode, we are going to be discussing liver health, understanding its role and function in keeping us healthy. I have the great honor uh, of having this conversation with Dr. Bilal Bobat. Uh, good morning and welcome, Dr. Bobat. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to have this conversation about what I think is a very important part of, of our body and often one I think we take for granted until something malfunctions. So thank you so much for joining us, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Hi, Zoya. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yes, the liver is certainly something that people often forget about unless it's on a Saturday night pub crawl, <laughs> in which case they, they know that they're punishing it. And I think before we get into sort of unpacking some of that, let's, let's maybe get to know you a little bit. So tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what your background is, and then we'll get into the conversation. Okay, so um, I am a gastroenterologist slash hepatologist. Um, my area of focus is hepatology, which is the study and treatment of liver disease. I'm based at the Vitzdonald Gordon Medical Center, where we have South Africa's largest liver transplant uh, unit. We were doing pre-COVID approximately 80 liver transplants a year at our center, of course, with COVID, the number of organ donors, unfortunately, declined dramatically because of uh, the way the ICUs were overwhelmed with uh, COVID cases. And unfortunately, our numbers still haven't quite recovered to what they used to be. We have, however, started a good adult living donor and pediatric living donor program, which has given many patients the opportunity to receive liver transplantation. Further background is that I trained at the University of Witwatersrand as a physician, and I did my gastroenterology training there uh, as well at Krishani Baragwanath before moving on to uh, Charlotte McDeke, Johannesburg Academic, uh, in order to focus on hepatology, where I worked with Professor Ernie Song, where he then took me under his wing and taught me quite a bit on, on liver disease. Okay, so I think we are in, in great hands to have the conversation today about why the liver is so important for our overall health. And I think maybe let's let that be our starting point. Why, why is the liver so important for our overall health, doctor? Okay, so the liver is the main chemical factory of your body. The liver is responsible for producing a variety of uh, hormones and converting the food that you eat, detoxifying some of it, obviously, such as that alcohol that I spoke about uh, a little earlier, but also many other things and converting it into useful products that the body can use. For instance, converting the carbohydrate that we may uh, take in into usable energy. Mm. It stores energy as well in the form of glycogen and, and stores it both in, in, in uh, or converts it, the carbohydrate into glycogen, which is stored in the liver and in the muscle, allowing you to have a ready source of energy when you're not eating. It also produces items such as cholesterol, albumin, other hormones, which involve uh, managing how the blood clots. Uh, regulating other hormones in the body, producing, for instance, thrombopoietin, which is um, uh, the hormone that stimulates uh, platelet production. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, it stores items, it detoxifies, and then produces a variety of products. So I think, I mean, we can both agree that it is it is an important part of the body. And so I think it becomes important to really think about, you know, how do I know if my liver is functioning optimally? Uh, what are some of the things that, that, I mean, I'm not walking around every day thinking about my liver and the things it's doing. Hmm. Uh, but I certainly think if something went wrong, you know, I might, I might become aware of the functioning of the liver. So what are the things that tell me that my liver is functioning optimally? So, you know, similar to kidney disease, there's often not much that you can be aware of if there's something slow and chronic hmm. going on in the background. The liver has an enormous capacity to forgive and 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 to carry on its task mm. while being damaged and you not be aware of it yeah. until one day you land up with features of end-stage liver disease. And this is why it would be important as part of your general health check to have your general practitioner assess your liver function. And this can be done with the blood test. And if required, something as simple as an abdominal sonar or mm. ultrasound. There are different forms of liver injury. I spoke about the chronic, slow, insidious uh, nature of some of the uh, causes. That being, for instance, if you were to take in too much alcohol, if your diet was abnormal and you were accumulating fat in the liver, those are by far the two most common diseases of lifestyle that uh, we're seeing landing up with end-stage liver disease. But, of course, there are a, a number of others. Mm. If you have a history of autoimmune problems in the family, there's a variety of autoimmune disorders that affect the liver. One can be an autoimmune hepatitis. Mm. A hepatitis can present with discomfort or pain in the right upper quadrant of the abdomen, which is just under your ribs on your right-hand side. You can develop jaundice, and that is the yellowing of the the eyes where it is most commonly picked up, but that is because of the accumulation of bilirubin, which is that yellow pigment that then accumulates in the tissue, and because of the eyes being relatively white, mm. the, the um, pigment is most visible at that place. Fever and then swelling, uh, swelling of the feet, Swelling of the abdomen can occur if there's an acute insult. Viral hepatitis then often presents in this sort of manner. And in South Africa, hepatitis A and B are very common. Hepatitis C is notable in certain communities, especially those with intravenous drug abuse. The hepatitis C can be inoculated hmm. uh, in that fashion. Hepatitis A and B will give you an acute hepatitis, and this is where you have a fever, uh, feeling unwell, fe features of a viral illness, but then the jaundice right up a quadrant pain would come up and predominate your symptoms. Oh, that was, that was a mouthful, doctor. <laughs> and I'm trying to sort of make sense of, of the different things. So maybe just to aid my understanding and that of the listener in particular. So, so, so we're speaking about how they, they could be various sort of things that cause the liver to not function properly. Okay. And you've given us a couple of categories and you've spoken about how there could be sort of a viral aspect or component to it. And you've spoken about hepatitis A, B and C, I think. Uh, and then you also spoke about chronic slow and and uh, 
insidious, you said. Just, just, just let's, let's break it down for the person who's sitting at home, uh, who, who says, look, I might present with some of the symptoms you've spoken to, uh, but, but it's, it's still a little bit fuzzy and I think we need to clear it up. Okay. So, so let's go back. So chronic, slow, insidious. Just, just help me to better understand what we're talking about there. And then we're going to move to, uh, you know, some of the causes that we spoke to. So hepatitis, jaundice, and it might present fever, a swelling of feet, et cetera. We're really thinking about the person who's kind of sitting at home and we wanted to really kind of just help them to understand this in the, in the easiest, I think, way possible. Um, remember I said I was that lay lady. Mm. <laughs> right. So, so in terms of chronic liver disease, chronic liver disease, you need to be aware of, do I have risk factors mm. associated with um, developing liver disease? Mm. And that could be if your alcohol intake is above recommended limits. Now, recommended limits for alcohol would be considered as 21 alcohol units per week for a man and 14 units for a woman. Now, what are these alcohol units? Mm. An alcohol unit is considered to be 8 to 10 grams of alcohol. I know. They don't make it easy, do they? But I'll, 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 I'll simplify it for you in a sec. 8 to 10 grams of alcohol per unit, mm. right? And if you're a man, you can have three of those units a day, but with at least two alcohol-free days a week. Okay. Okay? So this is my bottle of wine versus my two glasses. That's it. Okay. Now, if you were to look at South African table wine, right, that's about 13% mm. proof alcohol. So in 100 moles, that's already 13 grams. <laughs> All right. So 100 moles is not very much. You're sitting already on about just over one unit of alcohol per 100 moles of, of wine. Mm. A shot of spirits. So be it whiskey, vodka, etc., is generally considered about 45 moles. And that's considered then, again, one unit. Mm. All right. Mm. 200, 250 moles of beer, again, depending on the alcohol content, mm. is considered one unit. Okay. All right. So that's, that, that, that's it roughly broken up into, you know, some common drinks. Mm. Now, if you were to regularly exceed that amount, mm. That would be an individual that you should consider having your liver checked up on an annual basis okay. as part of your annual checkup with your general practitioner. Even if, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, when you're going to have your chest looked at, your mm. prostate if you're a man, your uh, breast cancer uh, screen if you're a female, just consider including having your liver looked at mm. as part of that general health checkup. If you are diabetic, if you are overweight, mm. if you have hypertension or uh, cholesterol problems, mm. the, this is where you need to also consider about the entity called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. This is where fat accumulates in the liver and becomes inflamed. When it becomes inflamed, it can lead to scarring, and that inflammation and scarring can eventually lead to cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is the end stage of liver disease mm. where you have an accumulation of scarring and inflammation that has occurred in the liver such that the liver can't perform its natural functions anymore and lands up as a scarred, gnarled organ. Mm. 
And that's generally when we start talking about the need for – that's generally when patients realize there's something wrong, mm. especially when it's those chronic processes where they weren't aware that my liver was actually inflamed mm. because they weren't checking up the, on those liver function tests or getting the sonars, that sort of thing, considering their risk profile. Mm. And that's when we have to talk about – things such as liver transplantation. Sure. So so if somebody presents with some of these, so diabetes, cholesterol, etc., you're saying, you know, it's important that you have even more regular checkups uh, because of those, you know, because of the risks associated with having these conditions in the first place. I wouldn't necessarily say more regular checkups, mm. but just to include it as part of at least an annual okay. review. Okay. Just as you're going to be going to your general practitioner or your physician for your checkups on your diabetes, your dyslipidemia, your hypertension, mm. just maybe slip in a liver function test as part of that profile. Okay. So I think, I mean, this is this has really assisted me um, to get to a better understanding. And perhaps for me, the next question is, let's talk a little bit about the liver's role in things like digestion, etc. So you spoke about the different roles that the liver plays. Let's zoom in on one element, which I think is quite important, digestion. Um, I know, and the little research I did is that the liver sits just above the stomach. Um, so help me to understand its role in digestion. Well, more than just sitting just next to the stomach is that the blood from the gut mm. drains into the liver first, where it breaks up into tiny little vessels and is then filtered through the the, the liver before rejoining into uh, larger vessels and then draining back into the heart and then pumped to the rest of the body. So all the blood from the gut first goes to the liver. Mm. Now, the liver plays a role in terms of protecting you in that process. Number one, there are all sorts of viruses, bacteria, and so on, that will come in with our food. Mm. Never mind the actual food itself in terms of what it requires to be processed. Mm. The liver offers an immune response in, in order to protect you from those bugs mm. that are coming through and helps stop you from, from becoming ill. It looks at various items and processes them into the building blocks that we need. The amino acids, taking fat and putting it into um, uh, usable means, such mm. as to produce cholesterol. Uh, and remember, cholesterol is not all bad. You, your body, your body's cells are made from cholesterol. Mm. So the, the liver is the processing plant of what you're uh, ingesting. Okay. And, and, and so, I mean, it's the processing plant of what I'm taking in. So, so it's a processing plant. It stores energy. It produces hormones, all sorts of things. Um, let's talk a little bit now about the hormones. You spoke about that as well. How does, how does the liver sort of, or liver failure, in fact, how would that affect the hormones? It results more, more in an imbalance mm. of hormones, um, particularly in men where you suddenly start getting uh, an overexpression of estrogen. Some of the features of liver failure are actually attributed to the hyperestrogenemic state that uh, these patients are in. Men can start developing what we call gynecomastia. That's a term meaning breast development. Mm. So they may complain of painful, tender, tenderness under the nipple. 
loss of the secondary sexual hair, such as under the armpits and in the groin area, testicular atrophy, and then um, uh, redness on the palms. Um, just as when women are pregnant, mm. they can get very red palms. So do people with liver failure for the similar reason of an excess of estrogen in, in the blood supply. So those are, those are some of the features that we use in order to diagnose chronic liver disease. Sure. So, so if we're talking about, um, sort of liver failure and we're looking at, at, at men and, and women, take me through sort of what, what are some of the things that we then see? I mean, you've spoken to this uh, hyperproduction, if we can call it that of estrogen for men. How does it show up for women? Some of this depends on the exact cause hmm. of the liver, liver condition. There are some conditions that will predominate in one area or another. For instance, there are autoimmune conditions that I mentioned that can affect the liver, hmm. and some of these can affect the bile ducts or the biliary system. This can result in significant portal hypertension. Portal hypertension is w is when the blood flow from the gut is affected from flowing through. Hmm. That then results in a condition called ascites. This is where fluid accumulates in the abdomen. Varices. Mm. These are most commonly found in the esophagus, but can be found elsewhere, such as in the hemorrhoidal plexus, <laughs> so piles, mm. and around the belly button. Esophageal varices are very dangerous because they occur in a relatively thin area with high traffic, so to speak, mm. and can easily bleed. And when these bleed, it can be life-threatening. And can be quite catastrophic. And this presents, sorry, just to go back to, so this presents with both males and, and females. It does present with both males and females. And the reason, reason why, uh, you know, I said now, uh, this in terms of females is that biliary disorders, such as primary biliary cholangitis, have a female predominance. Ah. All right. Okay. So uh, most of these are common to both. There isn't too much in terms of differentiating chronic liver disease between male and female. There can be slight subtleties between differentiating certain causes. And then certain causes are more common in men or women over the other, mm. such as alcohol, for instance. Mm. Alcohol is far more common in men, uh, alcohol abuse. Mm. Having said that, it is increasingly becoming a problem in women, and women require less of an alcohol load in order to land up with, with chronic liver disease. Of course. Autoimmune diseases are far more common in women mm. compared to men. Mm. There are certain genetic conditions that can also occur, and those are generally 50-50. Mm. You know, there, isn't, there aren't too many things that are necessarily sex-derived that will affect the liver specifically. And maybe just going off of what you've just spoken to here about the genetic um, conditions, what are some of those? So what are, you know, some of the genetic conditions um, that are related to, to, to liver failure or liver, you know, problems or conditions? So that can be divided into uh, conditions that affect children and, you know, can, can affect kids at a very Early age, and I am I, I am an adult hepatologist, so I'm not going to talk too much about that. But just briefly, things such as biliary atresia. This is where 
uh, although not necessarily a genetic problem, is a, a problem of development whereby the bile ducts don't form. Mm. And you get different degrees of this. Some can be surgically managed early on, but the majority of these children require a liver transplant. And uh, this generally occurs within the first year or so of life. Sorry, doctor. And this would just be because something had not developed properly? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the bile ducts don't develop properly. Okay. And like I say, there can be different, different levels of development developmental arrest. Okay. So some may have the ducts within the liver, but not outside of the liver connecting to the, um, to the gut. Okay. Conditions that commonly affect adults would be certain uh, conditions like we spoke about where the liver mm. receives a variety of uh, your nutrients from the gut and processes them. And then you have an inability to process. So the, the, Inability to process iron is quite a common condition. Mm. This is a condition called hemochromatosis. Hemochromatosis is an abnormal accumulation of iron in the body. The liver produces an enzyme called hepcidin, and this regulates how iron is uh, accepted into the body. Mm. Some people have a deficiency of this enzyme, and therefore the body is forced to take whatever iron the, the diet gives the patient. Mm. This le leads to toxicity in the liver where it will cause cirrhosis. It can cause pancreatitis. It will cause uh, pituitary abnormalities, so further hormonal problems including hypogonadism or uh, uh, male infertility especially um, and cardiac problems. Liver transplant is considered a cure for this uh, for this problem. Cystic fibrosis is commonly associated with the lung uh, pathology, but can also affect the liver. Mm. And this is commonly so in again in the pediatric population, mm. where you have sludge occurring in those bile ducts because of the poor flow of bile uh, through the uh, with these patients. Wilson's disease is an abnormal accumulation of copper. This copper can then accumulate in the brain mm -hmm. and cause neuropsychiatric manifestations as well as liver cirrhosis. Alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. This is a condition where you have this enzyme which uh, stops this uh, another enzyme in the body. It's a counterbalance to another enzyme called trypsin, which is a protein cleavage enzyme. Now, naturally, if you can think that without the balance between the cleavage enzyme and the anti-cleavage enzyme, mm. you get cellular damage. Alpha-1 antitrypsin is also more commonly associated with lung disease, but can also affect the pancreas and the liver and result in cirrhosis. And doctor, we're saying that all of these are necessarily genetic conditions. Yes, these okay. are all genetic conditions. Okay. I mean, I, I haven't heard of, of many of, of what you've mentioned they here. They are somewhat and I'm, rare. And I'm want, yeah, I wanted to ask the question, are these typically sort of rare conditions? Um, okay. So, so look, hemochromatosis, <laughs> I said mm. that, that that's something a little bit, you know, um, uh, less rare. Mm. Certainly, certainly more common than something like Wilson's disease, which mm. is the copper mm. accumulation. 
so, hemochromatosis, especially in Celtic populations, mm. so that's individuals from uh, Ireland, uh, Wales, Scotland, it's actually one of the most common genetic deficiencies in, yeah. in those populations, with about 1 in 20 individuals being affected at least partially. Mm. The problem comes in when two individuals that are partially affected uh, have kids and one of those children acquire both of the copies of the abnormal gene, mm. right? And that generally produces the full, full-out disease picture. Mm. Um, and maybe let me let me quickly cut in there because I'm thinking, you know, you're talking about um, an occurrence of a particular condition and you're locating, you know, it's um, – you know, the, how much it occurs based on the region. And I'm just wondering if we bring it sort of back to the African context. Mm, um, I was about what to, are some of the, okay. Yeah. So, a, so what do we see, um, from an African context, uh, or an African perspective? What do we see? Uh, what are the trends? What, what's more common, uh, from a liver disease or liver sort of, um, malfunctionality? Uh, what, what are we seeing locally? Are you talking specifically around iron? Now or or more generally? Uh, general. Okay. Okay. So so you know uh, why I ask that is that um, a previous professor of hematology at uh, the University of Witwatersrand did a lot of work looking at iron toxicity in uh, the the southern African population, where traditional beer was made in iron pots, ah. and you'd get a form of iron overload. From the alcohol being, mixed. being fermented um. in iron pots where the alcohol would encourage absorption of too much iron in the sure. body. And you'd also develop a iron toxicity uh, disease process. So, so that's just, uh, but, but it is slightly different to the common hereditary hemochromatosis phenotype. Mm. What is interesting in Southern Africa and in terms of the African populations, is the prevalence of autoimmune disease. Autoimmune hepatitis seems to be far more uh, vigorous, affecting a younger population, and seems to be harder to control in our population versus what is described in the West. Autoimmune hepatitis being one of them, but another condition called primary sclerosing cholangitis. This is an autoimmune disease where the body is attacking the bile ducts. The Vitz Donald Gordon Center's 10-year audit showed that we are about 24% of our transplants were for patients with PSC. This compared to internationally, where it's only about 6%. Mm. So this is this is an interesting field that I know our department is paying attention to and we are producing some research as to why this might be the case. Um, we're actually in the process of setting up something called a biobank. A biobank is where samples are stored mm. and where we can do future research to try and answer and unlock some of these questions as to why this is the case. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, and, and maybe doctor for, for the purposes again of somebody who's sitting, who's listening at home and, and we're talking about this prevalence or increase in autoimmune disease, particularly amongst the younger sort of people. What are we saying when we talk about an autoimmune disease? An autoimmune disease is where the body attacks uh, or produces antibodies. Hmm. Antibodies are part of the body's immune process. It 
um, these antibodies consider them as little missiles which kill cells. Mm. All right. An autoimmune process is where some form of stimulus has occurred and some form of confusion where the body is mistaking itself mm. as being foreign and is now attacking it. Mm. Okay. Mm. Common conditions that occur are rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, lupus, mm. um, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition. So this is now autoimmune conditions specifically affecting the liver. Mm. Sure. Okay. So, so, so let's move the conversation to treatment. Mm. Um, so, so we've spoken, I think, to, you know, the different types of liver disease. Uh, we've really, I think, understood, uh, you know, some of the, the, the risks that can be associated. Uh, so if you present as somebody who has, I think, diabetes, we said cholesterol, et cetera, um, that it becomes important for you to really have that annual checkup. What are some of the treatments, um, that are available for liver failure or liver disease? Okay. So let's start with viral hepatitis because that's very exciting. Viral hepatitis has had an absolute sea change in the last 10 years, or actually call it maybe more 15 to 20 years, where we've had effective therapies come on the market in order to cure viral hepatitis C. And this is something that we are uh, now able to do relatively easily and relatively cost effectively as well, most importantly, because when these treatments first came out in 2012, they were about $1,000 per pill. Yeah. Incredibly priced. Mm. Um, thankfully, this has come down considerably mm. and is now well within the reach of most people. Viral hepatitis C is curable. Viral hepatitis B, there are both, there is an effective vaccine that's available as well as effective treatment in order to suppress the hepatitis B viral load. If the hepatitis B viral load is suppressed, the liver can actually heal itself, oh. even taking patients that are with advanced fibrosis and cirrhosis itself. Over time, these patients can improve the functioning of their liver and regress that fibrosis, so clear it off which is fantastic news. Mm. I think hepatitis B is something that we need to talk a little bit more about in mm. the South African context because we are a high endemic uh, region. Unfortunately, we still don't have birth dose vaccination and pregnant mothers aren't aware that they need to get their gynees to check for their hep hepatitis B status. HIV is looked at. Other conditions such as syphilis and rubella, those things are looked at, but not so much viral hepatitis B. And that is a certain shortcoming in our healthcare system because this is a condition that can be prevented. One of the most common means of transmission in the South African context is mother to child. If the mother is identified as having hepatitis B with a high viral load, there is therapy to bring down that viral load mm. and to be able to protect the infant from acquiring the hepatitis B. Other ways of contracting hepatitis B include through risky sexual practices. So individuals often that acquire hepatitis B at birth 
have relatively high viral loads because of an immature immune system that can't recognize the hepatitis B as being foreign and doesn't get rid of it. When these individuals grow up and start having partners, it, 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 it's quite a common way of transmission. Hmm. When an adult acquires hepatitis B, they generally know about it. The patient is often sick. They develop that right upper quadrant pain, fever, and jaundice, hmm. but often then are able to clear the hepatitis. Maybe a quick question while we're on that. Um, mm. I, I mean, I'm thinking about how when I hear the word hepatitis B, um, there's often that association to kind of sexual conduct. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a little bit of a stigma attached to, to some of that. So we don't walk around going, I've got hepatitis B because, you know, our thinking goes in a particular mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think that, you know, that contributes in some shape or form to, you know, to the fact that we're not having this tested or that people aren't asking for, for that kind of test. I mean, this is just a, you know, a question. There are so many stigma that run around various health disorders. Mm. Uh, and, and absolutely exactly as you've said, that, that certainly is one. And it's unfortunate because the most common means of transmission in the South African context is actually mother to child. Right. And I think that's an important point to make, mm. um, that if we're encouraging people to go into, you know, to get tested for the viral hepatitis B, to say that the most common, you know, means of transmission is mother to child. So if you're a mother, it's important that you get tested exactly. for this because that you said, I think to your point, you said, number one, you can, you can get that viral load reduced. Exactly. I hope I'm using the right terminology yep. here. Yep. So you can get that viral load reduced and certainly um, ensure that you don't then transmit this to, to your unborn child. You know, there's one other important aspect about knowing your hepatitis B status, and that is hepatitis B is an oncovirus. This means that it is a virus similar to the human papilloma virus that causes cancer. Mm. So even in a patient without cirrhosis, the hepatitis B virus can cause liver cancer. There is no cure for liver cancer. The only way to to survive liver cancer is to cut it out or have a liver transplantation. Mm. So this is a real big problem in the South African context where individuals may have acquired hepatitis B at birth and then are presenting in their 30s with Mm. liver cancer, Mm. which carries an absolute dire prognosis. What then happens is that we often test brothers, sisters, mom, Etc. And we find other individuals in the family cluster who didn't know about it. Sure. I mean, there are things we can do. Exactly. (laughs) You know, before uh, it it gets to the place where I have liver cancer and now we're considering things like transplants, etc. And I think I'd like to take the conversation in that direction. Uh, So so earlier on, you spoke about, I think, part of your speciality is in liver transplants. Yes. Um, And so maybe the question, you know, becomes when, at which point? Um, And I think we've touched on it, right? We've said once a person's got liver cancer, liver cancer is not curable. so would that be one of the things that necessitate a liver transplant? Help me to understand sort of all of that. A liver transplant needs to be recognized as uh, the final uh, therapeutic modality in the line of cirrhosis. Hmm. This is where if there's absolutely nothing that we can do any further, we talk about a liver transplantation. Patients with cirrhosis are not necessarily all requiring a liver transplant at that particular time. You need to be 
sick enough for a liver transplantation. And that is where you have two types of cirrhosis. You have compensated disease. Compensated cirrhosis is where you've got the damaged liver, but the liver is still able to function. Mm -hmm. And there are no outward features of liver disease. Decompensated cirrhosis is now where the liver disease is clear and evident. They may be jaundiced. They may have had the bleeding from the esophageal varices, those abnormal blood vessels in, 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 in the throat, or some, something that is called ascites. This is where fluid accumulates in the abdomen. Hmm. When any of those conditions develop and are difficult to control medically, that's when we'll consider you for a liver transplantation. And what's the process involved? So, so I mean, I've heard things like uh, you require donors, and I'm I'm referencing something you said earlier about how uh, I think you said something like uh, you know we used to do uh, 80 liver transplants a year typically, but we've seen that number come down due to COVID, etc. Just help me understand the process: finding a donors, finding a match, or matching uh, somebody to the to the relevant uh, donor, etc. What is the process All around right. the liver transplant itself? Matching people to donors, etc. So. You're first seen in our clinic uh, at the hepatology clinic at the Vitz Donald Gordon Medical Center where we, we have uh, a team of doctors that will uh, assess you and say, okay, this is someone that does require a liver transplant. This is based on a variety of things such as the clinical manifestations of the patient as well as a scoring system called the MELD score. MELD stands for Modeled for End-Stage Liver Disease. It's a scoring system that we use to rank where would you fall on the list. Mm -hmm. We try and only list patients with a score of more than 12 because at that point, the risk of undergoing this major surgery, surgical procedure, Mm. outweighs the risk of uh, continuing with your damaged liver. Sure. All right. So you need a score of more than 12 to be considered. Once that call is made, we apply to your medical aid. Of course, the patients in the state sector are still able to access that list. And in that instance, the score that that decision is made amongst the team at the state facility using the same score that I spoke about in terms of the MELD score. So Mm. uh, I want to emphasize that the transplant list is not a private only uh, list, but is open to the state sector as well. Mm -hmm. Once they've decided that the patient qualifies, they go through a series of tests. They're required to see a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, a psychologist, a social worker to assess can this patient cope with the operation itself will they survive the operation is their heart strong enough is are their lungs strong Mm. enough psychologically is this person prepared for a life of medication after the transplantation because you know i i I, and i often warn my patients the first three months especially it's tough Mm. it's a major operation there are all sorts of medications that you have to go on called immune suppressants that stop the body from rejecting the new organ. Ah. Steroids, new onset diabetes, it can be rough. After the first three months, things start stabilizing. Mm. And after the first year, 
you're more or less have gotten used to the routine of taking your anti-rejection medication as well as getting back your strength and ability to live your life again. Mm. So it is, it is a significant process. And that's why, you know, the psychologist is so important in terms of assessing who can have a transplant uh, who or rather not who can have a transplant but who can cope with those mm. rigors and what needs to be done in order to support those who may need a little bit more help in terms of getting through that process sure it is it is quite rigorous and i think um you know you hit it when you said it is it's it's a major operation that's oh, massive um, mm. and and you spoke about how for the most part you know the risks um of having the transplant sometimes are higher than the risk of actually keeping uh, yes. your damaged liver. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm understanding that it's associated with one, can my body physically, um, handle this operation? Because it's such a big, uh, it's such a big procedure. But second to that, some of those associated psychological, mm. um, issues around taking medicine, et cetera. Do I ever get to a point as somebody who's had a liver transplant where I don't need to take the medication anymore? Um, or is it just kind of, it's, it's a, it's a complete change in lifestyle. This is the new life that I now have. I'd rather you say the latter. Okay. <laughs> it is very rare okay. for someone to be able to come off medication. We do have patients that have been able where, we, we, you know, our goal is to minimize the amount of immune suppressants that the patient is on. Mm. And through the first year, in fact, even two years, we are dropping and dropping the amount of immune suppression mm. um, in order to minimize that. There are a few patients that have rec- achieved what we call immune tolerance. But this is after a number of years. And I wouldn't say it's all that common. Mm. Okay. And certainly I'm not going to advise my, you know, I, I, I really advise my patients to stop their immune suppressants. And of course, doctor, in order to have the transplant, you need to have a donor. So take me through that process. How does one find a donor? Does it always need to be a family member, etc.? What is the process around actually getting the donor? Well, there are two types of donation that uh, can can happen. Firstly, there's the Donation through uh, a cadaveric organ. This is where an organ donor chooses to donate their organs once they're brain dead. Now, this uh. isn't this isn't any any patient that um, uh, passes away. This is in c- specific circumstances such as head injuries, strokes, where the heart is still pumping, but the brain has been injured to the extent that the patient is being artificially kept alive on ventilators and, and, and blood pressure medication and so on. That The family then get together and decide we would like to donate the organs mm. or the patient may have expressed this in life to say, I want to be an organ donor. Mm. The ICU, because that's generally where these patients are and are aware of these sort of circumstances and will give our team a call to say there's someone that is considering organ donation. And one of our nurses or donor uh, officers will go to the patient's family, take them through the process and try and get them to consent and say, yes, we are donating. This is a true gift of life. Mm. Remember that seven lives can be saved by that sort of sort of choice. 
And, you know, I want to pay tribute to all those that have made that decision mm. uh, on behalf of my patients that yeah, I can assure you are living life and, and, and treating those organs well. Mm. Um, that organ is then taken in an operation and back to the Donald Gordon Medical Center where the procedure will, uh, uh, where the transplant will take place. Mm. If, like I said, we do have a program of living related, um, or rather living, do a living donor program. A living donor program is where the patient is able to take a piece of liver from a donor. Mm. The liver can be divided into a left and right lobe. All right. It's a bit of an artificial distinction because it's like the kidneys where there's the left and right kidney. And it still involves a surgical procedure to, to cut that liver in half. The wonderful thing about the liver is that it has an enormous capacity to regenerate. And it really is amazing to see on the scans how quickly that happens. Wow. Both for the donor and for the recipient. That, that organ plumps up through both a process of regeneration, so new cell growth, as mm -hmm. well as something called hyperplasia, which means each cell grows in size mm. in order to fill up and give you the full amount of liver that you require. Yeah. And this is for both the donor and the recipient. So, not, not that you'd be then able to donate again, because there is a limit <laughs> to this. <laughs> but, um, yes, the, the, ideally it should be a family member. However, not necessarily. Mm. Um, if it is not a family member, there are all sorts of rules and regulations in place to make sure that this is not done as a perverse incentive. Mm. This isn't a case of, hey, you give me, I'll give you 10 grand and you give me a piece of your liver mm. sort of arrangement. Mm. Financial reward is specifically not allowed under South African law sure. and is, is, is expressly illegal. You need permission from the Minister of Health and he has an advisory committee. Um, the ministerial advisory committee where if you are not related to the patient, uh. we have to make an application to say this person would like to altruistically donate to this person. Will you please allow it? This is what we've looked at. There doesn't seem to be any coercion. There doesn't seem to be any financial uh, gain mm. for this person. He's doing it out of the goodness of his heart. The relationship is, and often we'd have to state, he's a friend. Mm. He's, um, uh, you know, he. this is how he does the patient and this is the motivation. Is it common to see this sort of altruistic type of living donor? Um. <laughs> you know, we've had we've had one or two, yes. You know, there was a desperate family a while back that put it up on Facebook. You know, not that, not that I'd recommend that. They were able to get, you know, they, they just went through their entire family and no one was suitable. Ah, and so um, they put out a plea, as it were, onto the social media platform. Onto social media and were able to find someone. And this was someone who honestly just, you know, uh, was driven by a sense of, uh, religiosity into ah. doing good. Mm. And, you know, yeah. Wow. It's really amazing to hear. <laughs> and no. when we talk about these transplants, doctor, are they, are they successful? Oh, goodness, I mean, what is, yes. what is the rate of success? 
So the Vitz-Donald Gordon Medical Center publishes our success uh, and our transplant audit data on our website. Mm. So it's open for the public to access, and you as a potential transplant recipient can go access that information. We have about an 85% one-year survival rate. And remember what I said in terms of a MEL score of of 12 being the rough point that we'd look look at in terms of weighing up your benefit versus risk. And that's where we've come up with that figure of 12, right? Anything mm. more than that uh, score and your chance of surviving to one year is less than 85%. Mm. So, Doctor, I'm wanting to to bring the conversation to a natural close, and and I think for me, you know, I'm 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 thinking about the person who says I've been informed. Um, really, this information has been useful. But what are some of the things I can do on a day to day basis throughout my life uh, that can really, you know, help me to ensure that I keep my liver healthy? I think that's that's really yeah. kind of the key the key takeout here. That at the end of it all, are there things I can do on a day to day basis to ensure that my liver is kept in a good place. Absolutely. All right. And I think that's that that'll be wonderful because the best thing to do would be to avoid a liver transplant. Of course. Of course. <laughs> don't 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 let my surgeons hear that. Um, <laughs> so it's basic. It's just try and focus on living as healthy as possible. Mm. You know, make sure that you're having a balanced diet. Try not to be too overweight. Um, I'm gonna say no alcohol. Uh, you know, uh, studies that have come out lately have shown that alcohol intake at any level for individuals is detrimental to 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 your health. Mm. Um, so I'm going to say no alcohol as opposed to moderate al- alcohol. But yes, if you do feel that you need to drink, then drink moderately. Be aware of what you're putting into your body. Mm -hmm. I know one topic that we didn't discuss much was drug-induced liver injuries. Drug-induced liver injuries can also occur from herbal medications, uh, supplements, traditional medications, all right, where that goes and and, and effectively is a toxin to the liver and can result in liver failure. So watch out for what you put into your body. And then, you know, in terms of safe sexual practices – it really is common sense. Doctor, you're saying watch out for what you put into your body. And I almost kind of got stuck there because I thought, well, what, uh, there's so many things I put into my body. How do I know which one is, 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 is not good for my liver specifically? Where do I get this information? Where can I, I mean, is, is, is Google a reliable source for me to go and to just get a, you know, a detailed sense of what supplements, uh, to be, to be quite specific, what supplements are not good, uh, for liver health that might present as a toxin? Sure. We generally ad- advise against supplements. Okay. You know, a big study came out looking at vitamins, stating that, you know, really, you don't, if you're taking a balanced diet, you don't need vitamins. I think that, I think, I think the real crux is have a balanced diet, avoid risky sexual practices, avoid things such as IV drug abuse, you know, in terms of viral hepatitis C. Uh, yeah. 
Doctor, I think we're going to leave it there for now. I mean, we, we've opened a whole can of worms uh, with the bit around the uh, the, the supplements. Uh, I know that I'm somebody who takes supplements, but I think, uh, you know, for me, the gist of it is to say that, you know, a balanced diet is number one, really, um, that emphasis on no alcohol. Um, and then, of course, those safe sexual practices. Yep. I'm, I'm seeing you itching to contribute something more. You know, just, just, just in terms of supplements, if you're going to be using a supplement, take it from someone that's well reputable. All right. Take it from your, 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 your major, uh, companies that have a reliable track record. There are so many supplements on the market and a lot of these supplements do not go through the same testing as normal pharmaceuticals go through. You know, that, that, that is where I raise my, 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 my red flag on them. Mm. And maybe, Doctor, we'll have you back for a conversation um, to unpack that a little bit further okay. because I'm having more sort of more questions come up in my mind about so when I go to my local pharmacy um, and I pick up a supplement today, is that what one might consider reliable, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want us to to, to go deeper into that conversation. I think uh, let's let's wrap it up in respect of, you know, our, our liver um, and really just uh, ways in which we can uh, do our bit on a day-to-day basis to ensure that we keep our liver healthy. And I think some of the points that you've mentioned around balanced diet, around really kind of watching that alcohol consumption, mm-hmm. um, you know, around our sexual behavior, etc., I think are critical. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I, I do want to go back and, and reference that all important uh, point you made uh, about that viral hepatitis B, particularly, uh, you know, if we're speaking about uh, pregnant uh, mothers or mothers-to-be, mm-hmm. expectant mothers, um, that it's important then to do those annual checkups. And then I think generally to everybody to say when you go for your regular check cups, maybe just uh, also include uh, testing to see uh, if your liver is in good health. I think it's been a productive conversation. Uh, thank you so much. I know that I certainly have gained a much better understanding in terms of how to take care of myself uh, from the perspective of maintaining uh, you know, good or healthy uh, liver functionality. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, I think that this has been a really insightful conversation. It's a pleasure, Zoya. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much uh, to those who are listening. I really hope that this has assisted you in terms of better understanding how you can take a really good care of your liver health. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the hashtag Faring Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube under Faring South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Faring IBD Health Diary app today. The Faring IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.